Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. This morning we also turn to our series in Matthew 1 and 2. And as we look at our, our second week of Matthew 1 and 2, we're looking uh, to see Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's kind of our point. We've named the whole series after it, for crying out loud, right? See, we're looking to Matthew to, to show us how Jesus was shown to us in the Old Testament. I remember when I was a, a high schooler and I was around our church and, and someone pulled me aside and I was interested in music and leading music and someone described to me that what a, a music leader's job was supposed to be was that they were like a butler, right? You've seen uh, Downton Abbey or whatever else, right? The butler is the person who does the bidding of the master. And the worship leader was the person who took uh, the worshiper from the front door to the presence of the master. That was what the, the worship leader was to do. We were to usher people in to the presence of God. It's the butler's job to, to do that, Right? So the worship leader or pastor or some other minister is this kind of servant that gets someone from, from away from the presence of the master to the presence of the master. But that isn't quite right, is it? Honestly, if it's my job to get you to God's throne this morning, I, I'm going to fail. Instead, the Christian must realize that this is distinctly the job of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who takes us from our our sinful being, our sinful state, to the presence of the Father. See, no person can bring you into the presence of God. And if we were to be with God, God had to become like us. In fact, that's kind of our our big idea encapsulated this morning. We we look at this passage in Matthew chapter 1, and this is where we're headed. Jesus is the promised Messiah who came to us that we might confidently come to the throne of God's grace. And we're going to see this in three different parts. In verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1, Joseph, uh, the, the husband of Mary, is going to contemplate a quiet divorce from Mary as he finds out that she's pregnant. But then this, this angel kind of comes and gives direction to Joseph in verses 20 through 23, and then Joseph himself is moved to obedience in verses 24 and 25. And as we kind of dig into this passage, what we want to pull out is the marrow of this situation as we discuss is that Jesus is this promised Christ, this promised Messiah who came to us that we might confidently come to God and to his throne of grace. I want to dig in this morning in Matthew chapter 1, as Brian read for us, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So what's happening here is that Joseph's contemplating this quiet, quick, out-of-the-way divorce. And it starts in verse 18 that Mary is pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Now first, let's talk a little bit about what it means to be betrothed. Nobody uses that word this morning, like when you introduce your wife, you don't say, here is my betrothed, right? 
You're engaged. I got betrothed. Um, it's slightly different than engagement. Really, uh, to break the relationship at this point between Joseph and Mary would have been a divorce, which is what the, the wording used uh, here in chapter 1 describes. It's kind of this commitment beyond engagement. It would have involved some legal issues. The marriage ceremony hasn't taken place yet, though, and all of the rights that come associated with that haven't taken place either. That's why it's surprising to find out that Mary is pregnant before she's actually gone through the wedding ceremony. See, Mary was probably pretty young. Some commentators, some scholars believe she's as young as 15 years old, maybe 15 to 20, somewhere in that range. And here she is. This pregnancy would have been a shock to those who knew her. It would have been a scandal, right? It would have been the talk of the the little town of Bethlehem. There would have been all kinds of gossip and slander and things happening because this young woman was pregnant. And so Joseph seeks to divorce her quietly. Matthew kind of describes him in an interesting way, doesn't he? He says that he was a just man. And particularly that word actually means righteous. Joseph is a righteous man. And I think what Matthew's getting at is he's saying he's a fair and equitable person, that he wants to treat Mary correctly. And so his intention is to, to divorce her quietly. What he means by that is probably outside of the court system, not in the public eye, kind of uh, softly taking her aside and saying, this isn't going to work. And so Joseph has this intention. But God has a very different plan for Joseph and Mary, and we know this story. Uh, an angel comes and, and gives direction to Joseph in verses 20 through 23, so look there with me. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, uh, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. See, an angel speaks to Joseph. Now let's look intentionally at what this angel says. First, as it's addressing Joseph, look at how it, it, it refers to him, Joseph, son of David. It takes us all the way back into the uh, genealogy of last week so that uh, once again, Matthew's kind of reminding us of the history of, of, of Joseph's line all the way back to King David. And, and because he is a descendant of David, one of his sons could sit upon the throne of David forever. But secondly, the angel tells Joseph he should not be afraid to marry Mary. Mary, Mary, right? Why? Well, he gives us a few different reasons. First, the child is from the Holy Spirit in verse 20. That is, Jesus has been placed inside the womb of Mary. Luke gets more descriptive in, in Luke one thirty five. It's on the screen here this morning. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. See, we have to be careful how we speak of this. The Holy Spirit oversaw the conception that happened in Mary's womb. Jesus' incarnation was brought about by divine activity in a human womb. Right? It's, it's the two uh, 
natures of Jesus. He has a divine nature and a human nature. And as the Spirit is acting upon the person Mary, he has this divine nature. He has this human nature. And we'll get more into that later on. But the second thing that that the angel says is that she will give birth to a Savior named Jesus. See, Jesus is to be the child's name. And you might know it better from its Old Testament form, Joshua. Uh, This name actually meant that Jehovah is salvation. Interestingly enough, David Platt kind of points out in his commentary, he says that uh, when Joseph named the child that wasn't biologically his, that was kind of the adoption process set in in fulfillment. When, When Joseph actually bestows the name on this child, he's actually bringing him into his house, and that's when Jesus receives all the rights of of descendant of of Joseph. Right? So that's how Jesus becomes the true descendant of David, the, the son of David that sits upon his throne. Matthew kind of goes on and gives comment about this in verses 22 and 23, all right? So Matthew kind of gives us this little aside. Our, our passage is all of, what, seven verses this morning, and two of these verses are actually reflecting upon uh, this old portion of Scripture from the book of Isaiah. See, Matthew 2 gives us two verses to comment about uh, what this, all this means in light of the Old Testament prophecies. And so what Matthew says is all this took place to fulfill, that is to, to fill up, to kind of complete what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. We'll find kind of similar uh, statements like this throughout Matthew 1 and 2 as we're continuing in our, in our study. But this, bo- uh, this quotation particularly comes from Isaiah 7. And in Isaiah 7 it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we want to kind of just go back and unpack that. See, back in Isaiah 7 there was a king named Ahaz. In fact, if you remember, Ahaz was one of the descendants of David listed last week in Matthew chapter 1. And, and Ahaz is in Jerusalem, he's reigning as king, and what happens is Israel and Syria come knocking on the door of Jerusalem wanting to invade. And Ahaz is shaking with fear. In the midst of that, uh, God raises up Isaiah the prophet and sends him to, Isaiah, to Ahaz to speak and say, hey, these two nations are not going to invade you. And, and by the way, I want to give you a sign. What sign would you demand of me that would prove that this isn't going to be true, that this is going to take place, that these nations will not invade you? And in, verses, uh, in chapter 7, uh, Ahaz looks back and says, oh, I, wouldn't, I, I don't need a sign, essentially. In verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7, uh, God responds by the mouth of Isaiah, and he says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. See, the idea is that when, when they saw this miraculous thing, this, this young girl, this virgin who would have a child, they would be confirmed that the words of the Lord were true, that this was going to actually take place, that these nations weren't going to invade just like God had promised. And so just as God was present with Ahaz, he intends to be present with his people in Matthew chapter 1. See, Matthew looks back at Isaiah 7 and he interprets that passage from Isaiah to highlight God's present faithfulness in sending Jesus. And so Joseph knows some new information, doesn't he? 
Joseph kind of takes inventory of what the angel is saying. And in verses 24 and 25, Joseph obeys. Look at verse 24 with me. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. See, Joseph wakes up from this dream from this stupor, right? And he's recognized these angels' words are true. He wakes up from this dream, and he commits to marrying Mary. It would seem that Joseph kind of just took this immediate action. He wakes up and initiates the marriage. We don't know exactly what the time frame was, but sure enough, this is, he, he responds to this dream in faithfulness. And it's not just immediate faithfulness that kind of tails off. This actually is a prolonged faithfulness because in verse 25, he commits to not uh, sleeping with his new wife so, that, so as to preserve the, um, the nature of Jesus, to make sure that there's no question about his origin. And so Joseph doesn't sleep with Mary until after Jesus is born, according to verse 25. Joseph goes beyond the request of the angel and actually uh, steps into a greater obedience in that way. So here Joseph is. He was ready to dismiss Mary, but this angel intervenes. And in the angel's words, we find a great deal uh, about who this person would be, right? That's kind of the, the way the text lays it out. This morning, we really want to pay special attention to something else. We want to really kind of dig into particularly who the person of Jesus is, because I think that's what Matthew's intention is. There's a a scholar by the name of Christer Stendhal, and he he actually interpreted Matthew 1 and 2, and he said, uh, Matthew 1 and 2 essentially answer two questions, who and where from. See, chapter 1 is all about who. Who is Jesus? And chapter 2 is going to answer the question, where is he from? Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? I mean, he's, he's answering these questions, right? And so in, in chapter 1, he's saying, who is Jesus? And it's a question for us today, isn't it? Who is this person, Jesus? What, what claim does he have on my life and on your life? And what claim does he have on us collectively? How do we understand the claims of Matthew about Jesus and what it means and what it holds bearing for us today? Who is Jesus? Well, the angel answers this question for us, doesn't he? He lays out three or four different things about the person of Christ that that help fill in the blank of who is Jesus. First, he tells us that Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. You might not know this, but Okay, I'm going to get my nerd on for a second, all right? I, I love to get my nerd on every once in a while. But back in, in church history, there was a council held at Chalcedon, which is kind of modern Istanbul, Turkey. And what this council was, was really there to describe was the person and the nature of Jesus. Because uh, according to some in, in that particular time and place, uh, Jesus was, was human and divine, but really the divine nature kind of swallowed up the human nature. And even if you saw Jesus with your eyes, it was really kind of a mirage, because really Jesus was kind of just putting on this uh, show of humanity, but he was truly just God, and you just kind of saw what you saw. And so they're trying to clarify all of this, and so there's this document called the Chalcedonian Definition, and I want to put it in front of you so you can be a nerd with me here this morning, right? It says, the same, truly God and truly man. This is this 
this statement that these council of theologians came up with together. The same, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body, of one essence with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same of one essence with us as regards his humanity. He's truly God, truly man. See, Jesus was truly God. He's the only human ever conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was unlike any child ever born before or after. Sorry, moms, it's, it's true. Your child is special, but not that kind of special. He was incarnate deity. It's what Watts says, right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That's what John 14 says. Jesus speaks to his disciples. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. See, Jesus proved himself to be divine. Jesus proved his divine nature through suspensions of the natural order, what we call miracles. He healed sickness and leprosy and blindness. He proved his divinity through his authoritative teaching. He proved his divinity through his rulership over spirits and and authorities on the earth. See, most importantly, Jesus showed his divine nature in his resurrection that God was approving of the Son of God by raising him from the dead. So Jesus Christ is truly God. There's there's nothing lacking in his divinity. He laid no part aside of his glory or of his his divineness or his godness so that he could come and be human. But he's also truly man. Jesus was fully human in all the ways we would anticipate. He had a mother He experienced the fullness of of human living. He had emotion. There's an old scholar by the name of B.B. Warfield who wrote an essay entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in it, he just kind of digs into two particular emotions that Jesus pretty regularly lived out. Jesus was one who was compassionate You look at places like Matthew 9, and he looks upon the crowds, and he has moved to compassion. There's something inside of him internally, emotionally, that is responding to the hurt and the heartache that he sees. Jesus is moved to anger when he sees the the money traders at the temple. He turns over the temple. He says, my father's house is a house of prayer. He makes a whip and he drives out the animals. Jesus is constantly showing us his human nature through his emotion, but it's different because it's not ruled by sinful emotion. It's not sinful anger that drives him to drive the animals out of the temple. It's not sinful compassion that moves him to consider the needs of others. See, Jesus had human emotion. Jesus also had human weakness. You realize that Jesus had to sleep and eat and do everything that we do? I mean, there's this passage, I believe it's in, in Matthew or John, where, where Jesus comes into a boat and he's asleep because he's exhausted. When he's resurrected in John chapter 20, he says, does anybody have anything to eat? Jesus is fully God, truly God, and truly man. It's bound up in this idea that he has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. The second thing that the angel tells us here in Matthew chapter 1 is that Jesus is the Savior of his people. Now, we consider that because Jesus was fully human and fully God, 
That's how he becomes the Savior of his people. In, in being our sympathetic high priest, because he's truly human and also truly divine, he stands and advocates before the Father. He saves his people from their sins, as the angel has said. He wasn't a war hero. He wasn't a political fi- figure. Jesus saving your work was the one thing that we had no capability of doing ourselves, appeasing the wrath of God. See, it took all of Jesus' nature, truly man and truly God, to be this Savior. As man, Jesus was the fully obedient Son who gave the obedience that He had in 33 years of living before the throne as a sacrifice that pleads a better word than the blood of Abel. It's it's the the propitiation for our sins, as 1 John chapter 2 says. And as God, he is exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. And so John reminds us, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See how he had to be fully God and fully man to be Savior. But it doesn't just stop there. He had to be Savior for him to be Emmanuel, God with us. See, Jesus is God with us. Jesus represents the nexus of heaven and earth. He is the ladder upon which uh, the angels ascend and descend. We saw that a few weeks ago. He's the the placement, the, the mediator between God and man so that now Jesus is the one who brings heaven and earth together in His atonement. See, as the angel lays out these things, we see the uniqueness of our Savior Jesus, don't we? I want to draw your attention back to something else in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. It says that this is now the birth of Jesus Christ. You realize that Christ just isn't Jesus' last name. This is a title. It's a title meaning anointed or Messiah. See, when we refer to Jesus as Christ, we are ascribing to him the title of the anointed Son of God, the fulfillment of the Old Testament's expectation, the one who would crush the serpent's head, the one who would sit upon David's throne forever, the true son of Abraham who would bless the nations. And so what's really happening in this passage is that Matthew is presenting to us a kind of argument, a kind of syllogism. He's saying Jesus is the Christ because he was born of a virgin. Jesus is the Christ because he is the Savior of God's people. Jesus is the Christ because he is Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew's laying out an argument for the Messiahship of Jesus. If he is Christ, he's worthy of all of our devotion, all of our worship, all of our affection. Amen? You might step away and say, this is all like some really uh, ivory tower nonsense. What does it have to do with me and with my life today? You know, it's great that we have these kind of high and lofty thoughts about Jesus, uh, lofty ideals about who Christ is, but what does it actually mean for me now and here? And I want to just give us an example of a scripture passage that kind of pulls us practically into why uh, Jesus' full divinity and full humanity matters. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, it's on the screen here this morning, uh, the author of Hebrews writes, writes this, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Look at what the author of Hebrews highlights here. Jesus passed through the heavens twice, in fact, right? The first on his way down to be incarnate, to take on our flesh, and then secondly in his ascension so that when he takes the seat at the right hand of the Father, he ascends into heaven. It shows that he is divine, that he's truly of God. But the second thing that the author of Hebrews says is that he sympathizes with our weakness in verse 15. He's in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. You feel tired this morning, so did Jesus. Do you feel weary this morning, so did Christ. Are you tempted, so was your Savior. He felt the weight of hunger, of weariness, of temptation. He felt all of that because he was fully human. And so what the author of Hebrews tells us to do in verse 16 is with confidence draw near to the throne of God's grace. With confidence draw near to the throne of God's grace. So Christian this morning, draw near. Come to the throne of God's grace with confidence, not because of your righteousness or my righteousness, not because of good theology, not because of anything else that you put on, but because of the shed blood of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Come with confidence to the throne of God's grace. Come, Christian, come and find grace in the presence of God. Receive mercy. Have you received mercy from God? Maybe you're here this morning, and this is entirely new to you. You've lived a moral life or perhaps an immoral one, but now you see that you need mercy from God. Your sins cannot be paid for by good deeds. You need the perfect obedience of Christ. And so, this morning, you recognize the weight. You need mercy to come before God's throne. And I would encourage you to come and talk to me or talk to Brian and, and, or one of our elders, and we can help you work through that. But perhaps you're another kind of person here. You're that person who has lived in the church. You're the Christian who has been around, but you, you cannot come before the throne of grace because you have no confidence You're so aware of those lists of sins that have just dogged you for years. God beckons you. Come. Find grace in your time of need. This morning, I'm increasingly concerned that we are embracing, not us, but evangelicals at large, are embracing a form of faith that doesn't need mercy. In its own mind, uh, the church today doesn't need mercy as much as it needs a therapist. See, our biggest problem that we see is in our own psyche. And if we could just get the right self-understanding, the right personality test, the right medications, we'd be a okay 
See, the Western gospel, the, the gospel of the American church today traffics in, in mental health categories. We see our problems as internal to us or horizontal to us. We see our problems as, as who my father was or, or the doubts and the things that are inside of me. And we don't see our fundamental problem as vertical between God and myself. Recently, I saw a GIF on social media. I have to be honest, I don't like sharing these things sometimes because it can produce kind of a self-righteous spirit in us, and I, I don't like that. But I think it's worth sharing this example of, of a way that our world tends to think about who Jesus is. And this is what the gift said. It says, following Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life. Following Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life. Who doesn't sign up for that? Do we follow Jesus for a better life? Is that why you follow Christ? Did Paul's life get better after Damascus happened? Because in my Bible it says that he was stoned, that he was shipwrecked, that he was beaten. Did the disciples' life get better after Christ? Because in my Bible, Peter was a fisherman. That's a good life, right? And he ends with him being crucified upside down. How does that statement, following Jesus will make your life better, square with the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9? If any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We've twisted Jesus, haven't we? What about the second part of his statement? Following Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life. Does do we follow Jesus to get better at life? Is that why we follow Christ? I've got to be honest, I'm, I've been a Christian for some 20 to 25 years, and I don't feel an ounce better at life today. In fact, the Christian life brings us into a, a deeper and deeper awareness of our sin. Christians uh, likely don't describe themselves as having a better or being better at life. The longer a Christian lives, the more they find themselves to be grace-needy. We have this wrong-headed notion about what it means to be Christian, that we follow Christ and that He's going to make our life better and make us better at life, and it's a distortion of the life-giving gospel. See, right now, you follow Jesus because He's an advocate before the throne of the Father. Right now, you follow Christ because right now, at this very moment, He intercedes with His own blood before the throne of God. He speaks a better word than the blood of Abel for all of the sinful acts you and I have committed. We don't follow Jesus to have a better life. We follow Jesus because He alone saves us from our sins. So, Christian, find mercy. Flee to the throne of grace to find mercy from God in Christ. But what the author of Hebrews also says is not that just we find mercy, we find grace to help. 
Can I ask you, do you need help? See, every person with a heartbeat should be able to affirm that statement that we need help. We all need grace from God to help. And what this does is it puts a question in front of us this morning. As Matthew lays out the person of Christ, uh, conceived by the Spirit, saving His people, God dwelling with us, it puts a question in front of us. Is, Is Jesus just going to be a life coach? Or is He going to be Messiah? Recognize the notion of a life coach, right? Life coach is that person that helps you better yourself and, and work on yourself. Uh, you, you kind of designate these areas. I want to lose weight. I want to become a better reader. I want to have career advancement. And so I go and I hire a life coach, and he kind of helps me upgrade myself. I become, uh, I was person 1.0, and then I go from person 1.1 to 1.2 or whatever else it is, Right? And so I upgrade myself through this process of a life coach. And so some of us look to Christ to just become a better version of me. We just want to kind of become something more than what we are. And the truth is that Jesus didn't come to just make you better than you are right now. He came to recreate you. Isn't that the promise of 2 Corinthians 5? We are a new creature. The old things have gone. New things have come. Isn't that the promise of uh, the prophecy in Ezekiel where he takes up the dry bones and he puts on flesh and they make a new man? See, a Messiah is sent to save, not to upgrade. He doesn't wait with his arms folded. He doesn't just belligerently respond to you. He opens his arms and wants to recreate you and renew you in his resurrection. I want to pause and just take that in. I misspoke that for a second. So we can, we can picture Jesus like this um, hard-nosed boss that hovers over us looking for any wrong any infringement upon his law and wants to squelch us or or smash us under his thumb. But the truth is, Jesus is one who said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus is the one who looked out upon the crowds with compassion. He looks at you now with compassion like a sheep without a shepherd. He invites you. He beckons you to come to him. He invites you through through the author of Hebrews to, to find grace, to receive mercy, to approach the throne of God with confidence. Yesterday, my wife and my daughter were out, and uh, I was trying to read a book. And um, this is by way of confession for me. And I hear this, this, it sounds like cats, you know, and it starts, it's like, get off me, get off me, get off me, get off me, like it becomes more desperate as it goes, right? And the anger starts in my stomach, and it goes to my hands, and they clench, and my jaw, and the vein starts popping out of my neck. I didn't like hulk out or anything, right, but... There's a visceral response in me. 
And I just went out and I just yelled. I joke about it, but it, it wasn't funny. And I, I just, I don't even remember what I said. I just, just yelled. So angry. And as I took inventory of that moment later on, I, I just realized that I got angry because I was selfish. In my mind, I was thinking, why can't they just be quiet and let me read in peace? I got angry because I was self-righteous. I said, I, I wouldn't have done this when I was their age. And I got angry because I, I wanted a quick fix. I wanted to go back to my reading, and so yelling was far easier than actually shepherding my children like God has asked me to. So the thing I recognized is that sometimes I'm a pretty bad dad. And in those moments, I can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. I can find mercy. I can receive mercy. I can find grace to help in my time of need. See, we ask, why why does it matter that Jesus was both God and man? Why does it matter that He was the Savior? Why does it matter that He was God with us? Well, because you and I sin, we break God's law, and we need an advocate before the Father, and only the God-man can do it. You and I need the confidence that there's one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit into a human womb who lived perfectly for 33 years and now advocates before the throne of God on our behalf. That's what we need, isn't it? Otherwise, all I have is guilt from that moment. I want to pray that God makes us a people that cling to the goodness of Christ in the gospel. It makes us a people that come before God's throne with confidence. We find grace. We find mercy. Let's pray this morning. God, we ask exactly that. Help us to flee to your throne to find grace, to find mercy, because you so abundantly give it and you so desire to give it away. Lord, allow us to see your heart, that you are one who wants to commune with us, who wants to give mercy and kindness to us so that we can be with you. So Lord, teach us about your mercy. Teach us about your grace. Help us to respond in kind. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.